0: Hey listeners, Jonathan here. I'm dropping in on the back catalog of episodes to let you know about a very special workshop that I'm putting together in April for fans of Mindful Money. In this workshop, I'm gonna be covering the path to financial independence or what we used to call retirement. I wanna show you how to create an income stream that rises to meet your rising cost of living and lasts the rest of your life. I wanna show you how to build a simple, resilient portfolio that requires the least worry and effort. This is how I manage my own money. And I want to show you how to manage and adjust income through a life of rising costs and volatile market. And as per usual, we're going to bring uh, the focus back around to those things we know add to happiness and support well being when you do finally reach financial independence. You can register at the link below, courses.mindful.money forward slash mindful retirement review workshop. Thanks. I hope to see you in class. It's
1: money matters to how people answer that question because if you have been able to choose what you want to do in life you're going to be a lot more satisfied with it if you want to be an artist or your truck driver you know it's not the great but really quickly but so that and that can we also use another scale called the cantrell ladder which is 11 points zero to 10 and people compare their life to the best possible life they can imagine that's another way of measuring life satisfaction
2: do you think money takes up more life space than it should on this show we discuss with and share stories from artists authors entrepreneurs and advisors about how they mindfully minimize the time and energy spent thinking about money join your host jonathan dio and learn how to put money in its place and get more out of life
0: hi there welcome back on this episode of the mindful money podcast i'm chatting with carol graham carol is Interim Vice President and Director of Economic Studies at the Brookings Institute, College Park Professor at the University of Maryland, and a Senior Scientist at Gallup. And there's this long list of books, and I'm not even going to touch on all of them, but I want to give you a quick background here. I'm going to start older and work up to today here. So she wrote the book Improving the Odds, Safety Nets, Politics, and the Poor, Private Markets for Public Goods, Raising the Stakes in Economic Reform, Happiness and Hardship, Opportunity and Insecurity in New Market Economies, Happiness Around the World, The Paradox of the Happy Peasants and Miserable Millionaires, which I think that's the greatest title ever, The Pursuit of Happiness and Economy of Well-Being, Happiness for All, Unequal Lives and Hopes in Pursuit of the American Dream. And she's also published a lot of other things and co-authored some things and edited some other things and been in lots of journals and all areas of social science and economic behavior and population and health, psychology, and economics. But I wanted her on the podcast because I wanted to talk about her most recent book, which is The Power of Hope, How Well-Being Science Can Save Us from Despair, Princeton University Press in 2023. With all that, Carol, welcome to the Mindful Money Podcast.
1: Thank you, Jonathan. I'm really happy to be on. And with a title like Mindful Money and your interest in what my you know, kind of things that, you know, how, being mindful about money and how you spend it and how that links to, I think, human behavior and human well-being, it seems like it's great to try and contribute to that discussion or the series of discussions that you have.
0: Thank you. So first of all, where do you call home? Where are you calling in from?
1: I work in D.C. at Brookings and I live in Maryland on the Chesapeake Bay, but not the eastern side, the western side. So near Annapolis, Maryland. Okay. So my work home is DC. My home is on the bay in Maryland. We lived in DC for a long time, but we're now in my parents' old house because it just the only way I could keep it when my dad died was to move. So I moved me and the kids there. But I actually was born in Peru, so that's another home place I call home. And I grew up in a kind of a background where my mother was French and Swiss, but born in Peru, and then we moved. My dad was American and Peruvian and had an Institute for Malnourished Infants in Peru, which he started the year I was born. I was the last of six kids. So I grew up with sort of public health and poverty, you know, in my orbit from day one. But we moved to Baltimore because he went to Hopkins to join the med school faculty. And we were a bit of fish out of water in Baltimore. My mother was, nobody could figure out what language she spoke, much less where she was from because English was like her fifth language and nobody knew where Peru was in North Baltimore at the time. But, so I feel very lucky to have lived and been exposed to a lot of different cultures and yeah, that's, so home is a complicated concept for me.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you, especially before you moved to Baltimore, what kind of money lessons did you learn growing up? Or how old were you when you moved to Baltimore?
2: Three,
1: so probably not a lot of money (laughs) lessons. When we moved, I didn't speak English. So I think I learned English in, you know, going to nursery school, not being able to speak it, but, you know, kids that age. I mean, my dad had spoken to me in English, but I grew up in, you know, Spanish. and we, I mean, we still have Peruvian food and my kids speak Spanish and it's very much part of our lives. So money's always been something that I've thought more about in terms of for people that don't have it and how they cope. And over time, I've worked much less on poor countries than on the U.S., precisely because we seem to have a paradox of miserable, not so much miserable millionaires, but miserable working class. And at the same time, you know, inequality no longer being a sign of opportunity where you can go, but really just being a sign of, you know, advantage for the rich and disadvantage for the poor. And as we know, our intergenerational mobility has dropped a lot in terms of rates. And when I was growing up, I thought of the U.S. as the place, as much as I love being in Peru, I used to thought of the U.S. as sort of the place of stability, right? The economy seemed on track. We had hyperinflation in Peru. The democracy worked. We had military coups and all kinds of things. And over time, that's I don't want to say it's totally flipped, but there are a lot of big concerns about how unequal our society is and the spillover effects of that and how rich the very rich are and how that also makes a lot of things seem out of reach for even normal people and actually does make certain things out of reach because the private school tuitions go up, college tuitions go up, and certain people can afford it and other people can't even think of it. There are all kinds of spillover effects, and then more recently, I would say what has been eroding our democracy in part is that erosion of our shared cohesiveness Mm -hmm. as a society and the shared ability of people, or at least the shared belief that people used to have that they could get ahead, that this was a land of opportunity, and it's really not. And, you know, you can measure inequality with money metrics, but you, I've been... More recently, trying to measure it in terms of different qualities of life, life, different okay. hopes and expectations, but it'll be.
0: Yeah, just before we dig into the book, I was wondering if you could give us like the background of the work you... Because you've written a lot of things. That's why I want to list all those things. And they're kind of all in that same space. So what is it that all that stuff together comes to this idea of hope versus despair? And what leads to that book?
1: So one of one of the things... Well, I spent a lot of time, as you can tell from the titles of my early books, trying to figure out how to, we could improve conditions and including conditions for success for more people in developing countries, how we could reduce poverty, not through handouts, but creating systems that allowed people to participate in their own lives, participate in society and to you know thrive and flourish would be the, the words in well-being. but Ultimately, you know, more and more money does not buy more and more happiness. But if people are destitute, if they're so poor that they can't plan, you know, what the next day looks like, what's the next negative shock going to be, and they're always in a survival mode, that sort of stress, actually, there's a lot of literature on it now. That kind of living makes it very difficult for people to plan ahead, to even think about opportunities, right? And so over time, I was, you know, looking at, Poverty in different contexts, a lot in Latin America, because that's where I'm from. And I found and still find the Latin Americans to be a very hopeful, having of sharing a very hopeful culture, having a sort of joie de vivre and really valuing quality of life, music, good food, all those things. Latin Americans do not, you know, eat in their cars as they're running to the next meeting. They right. you know, and then studying. Poverty in other contexts where it was much less hopeful. And it was really depressing, even though the people were less materially deprived. One of the most stark examples were the first times I traveled to countries in the former Soviet Union after the wall fell. And they, you know, people had no freedom and very little room to be creative, but they were taken care of and probably to a flaw in a way. So, what I found was remarkable was that when people in countries like Poland or Ukraine, the then Ukraine, fell into poverty, they didn't like have a crafty solution to try and help them get out of it. They sat home and waited for the government to do something about it because the government had always done something about it, and then the government didn't come right mm. and so we had and I found that much harder to. Grapple with really than the kind of more material deprivation, but higher levels of both hope. And, you know, one of the things that separates or makes hope important is that it comes with agency. It comes with, it's not you just believe things will be better, you think you can make things better. And that's what the Latin American poor do. I mean, they'll walk across our stupid border to make their lives better, right? right? So, but over time, I also coming back to the United States, Probably starting after about 2010. You know, I lived here and worked here for most of my career and did, you know, had college in college here and PhD in England. So it's not as though I was only in Peru, but, you know, I did, I do go regularly. And I kept coming back to the United States thinking, what is so hard about being poor here? And in part, it is materially more difficult to be poor. Like, you know, if you're poor in Peru, you don't really need heating. I mean, the winter's a little damp and cold, but you're not going to freeze to death. You know, you can take public transportation. It might be one of those little micro buses where you're smushed in like sardines, but, you know, people will do anything to get to work and to get a better job. And yet here, you know, so many places, if you don't have a car, you know, you're really, you're just, you can't do anything, right? And if you don't have health care, which many poor people in this country don't, you're also saddled with, you know, a lot of problems and a lot of potential negative shocks if say you have a sick kid or something like that a cycle that you can't a vicious cycle that you can't get out of and then the other thing i think that really drives it is the stigma that we have i mean we act as though giving transfers to needy people is some awful thing and right. do everything to reduce you know their ability to get them which is really perverse from a just even a self-interest and point of view from a society, right? But it's also the old American dream myth. You work hard, you get ahead. It's a very individualistic vision of life. And it worked very well for the people that had decent jobs, decent blue-collar jobs as well as, you know, white-collar jobs who often had tended to be whites who had, you know, privileged access to those blue-collar jobs. And so the idea was that if you were poor, you were poor because it was your fault. We hadn't worked hard enough, you know, It's kind of, and, you know, we know that's not usually the case. And we also know that very wealthy people have often had luck in their lives, right? Like Robert yeah, Bob Frank for sure. Cornell, Robert Frank is a great friend of mine and a really neat economist. He's written a whole book on luck, right? And how people forget that story that, you know, most wealthy people probably worked hard to get wealthy, but they've also had lucky breaks. Yep. Right. And it's harder to have negative shocks if you've got if you're well endowed, or to, you know, it's easier to navigate them. And then also, even the old Horatio Alder story, you know, the poor boy who got ahead, he had a meant a benefactor. I mean, you know, come on. But that gets forgotten. And so one of the reasons I think that I started really worrying about the US is that not only was that the case, but that all of a sudden we had premature debt, you know the so-called deaths of despair right. and that it just seemed and we had a, our politics sort of falling apart and a lot of things that made me for the first time in my life start to be really worried about the U.S. and what was going on and so that's kind of how I got to where I got I also was last thing I started I fell into work on happiness by mistake yep. I was looking at you know, people in Peru coming out of poverty. And I thought, I wonder how they think they're doing, because it was a time that early 2000, when everybody was saying globalization is bad for the poor and protesting against the World Bank and all this stuff. And I thought, well, I don't know, they seem to be doing pretty well, because Peru was growing very fast at that during the time period. Data for both people's income and, and then, then we interviewed them about their perceptions. So we knew how well they'd done or badly they'd done in objective income terms. So a lot of people were coming out of poverty at an amazing rate. And yet over half the people who did the best said their economic situation today was bad or very bad. And a lot of the poor rural people who'd had no income change said their situation was the same or better. I was like, what? So part of it is indeed, you know, kind of changing aspirations. And as you get out of poverty, you become more aware of how actually how much more other people have, lots of things. But there was also sort of personality traits interacting, you know, less happy people care more about money. Happy people care more about learning and creativity. All these things I found out, you know, exposed. But when I found it, I couldn't explain these findings. I called them my happy peasants and frustrated achievers. Which turned into the miserable millionaires, I suppose. But, and I fell in, I was incredibly lucky to be working at Brookings, but also we had some neat visitors at the time George Akerlof, Danny Kahneman, really the few people, you know, it was a teeny group of economists collaborating with psychologists, you know, God forbid. And then Danny won the Nobel Prize in economics as the first psychologist to do. So that gave us some momentum and confidence, but mainly after a lot of hard work, people realized maybe this is a crazy after all, but for a long time, for the first, I would say decade that I worked on happiness and well-being in economics, people thought I was borderline nuts.
0: Yeah. Well, of course, like it's, you were not the rational man, literally man theory. Is right, sort of- not at all.
1: And actually, you know, that people would say, oh no, your income must be. That variable but must be mismeasured or whatever they just right. couldn't accept that maybe income wasn't the only thing
0: that mattered so how do you end up measuring hope like what is the thing that you measure
1: it's a bit like so the basic measurements that we know the most about the basic one of all is life satisfaction how satisfied overall with your life and that can be on a zero to ten scale in general right at your life in general People that's a cognitive assessment and that people think about their life as a whole, right? So if they're young, they think ahead and if they're old, they look back. And it's yes, money matters to how people answer that question because if you have been able to choose what you want to do in life, you're gonna be a lot more satisfied with it. If you wanna be an artist or your truck driver, you know, it's not the so great. But really quickly, but so that and that can we also use another scale called the Cantrell ladder, which is 11 points zero to 10, and people compare their life to the best possible life they can imagine. That's another way of measuring life satisfaction. So, the way you measure hope is a little more messy. There's a future life satisfaction where it was what's the best possible life you can imagine? Where do you think your life will be in five years? So, that's pretty open ended, and it requires hope to say your life is going to be better yeah. than your current score in five years. But then we try and we've tried to, because it's measuring hope is a newer dimension of well-being, we try and benchmark it against other ways to measure hope. Like, do you feel you control the things that happen to you? Are they just, you know, is it always circumstances about beyond your control? Are you hopeful that you can achieve the things you want to achieve in your future? There's a whole battery of questions that we use. And then I can talk about how we measure
0: despair too, but. But it's primary survey results. I mean, I ask because I was wondering how much, like if I looked at a person and looked at their situation, I might look at their situation and say that is hopeless, but they may not feel hopeless. They may be hopeful, right? So I'm wondering how much of it is individual reporting survey results and how much of it is, you know, here's the statistics of people who look like they might be hopeless and therefore they're hopeless.
1: It's a bit of both.
0: Is it? Okay. Well, I mean- How do you differentiate then? How do you differentiate?
1: So- it's a little technical, but it works a lot better when we have surveys on the same people over time. Yep. And then in our, and we ask these questions in large and surveys so that first of all, people don't really, we're not asking people, whether it's for life satisfaction or stress or anger or hope, you know, all the questions we ask about. We aren't saying, do these things make you happy or unhappy, right? We ask them how satisfied they are with their life in general. We asked them if they had stress frequently yesterday, yes or now. We asked them also, as in the British statistics now, do they have meaning and purpose in life, which is really cool and part of hope, actually, but they don't know that then the way we measure their hope is to also take, get data on their age, their income, their gender, their job status, their marital status whole range of control, what we call control variables. So controlling for the factors that are unique to the individual person, we can isolate, you know, just how they've answered the question independent of that. If we have the same data or data for the same people over time, what we call panel surveys or longitudinal surveys, then we can do something that sounds really typical economist tricky do we can control for what we call person fixed effects so what we're doing with that is again we are we're holding the person's traits constant meaning that those traits don't change over time so we can't really include age in that but we can include things that will stay pretty you know gender race in general education levels after people have finished you know college or grad school, they're not going to go on and get more, or unlikely, okay, they'll get more education. The things we can sort of hold constant, and then we can see that people's responses are not, you know, we can see how people's individual specific traits are not determining the response. There is like, it's not because of their income or their gender or whatever, because we've held that constant, and that there's some robustness across time and how they answer these questions. We also do that actually for countries. We can do it for counties, you can do it for regions. So, you know, we know there's cultural differences in the way people answer surveys, like the U.S. are much more likely to Americans to be at the very top or the very bottom scale, you know, or a bit of extreme as a culture. The Japanese are much more likely to be low key and be in the middle okay. and be understated. and so. What we do is we can cluster all responses. Say it's a worldwide comparison. So we cluster the Japanese responses, the American responses, so that we can take out whatever response bias is common to Japanese people or common to, you know, Americans. And then with regions we can do that. And for example, Latin America, I mentioned cheerfulness and hope. They always score well above their weight in terms of income and in terms of well-being and cheerfulness. So the control variable for Latin Americans is is pretty important because it's capturing a lot of, you know, cultural differences that determine the way they respond to these surveys and they still respond high. So what are you going to do? But that's probably more than you need to know.
0: (laughs) It's just a quick comment. It's interesting to me to note that the Japanese are sort of middle and the U.S. is kind of outlier, you know, we're extreme in our survey answers. I look at the Japanese culture as a very mindful culture and look at the U S culture as not a very mindful culture. And I think that that's, we do go extreme and I catch myself saying internally, like, this is a thought that I have before I say a thing it's if I'm too, like, if I downplay this, I won't get the attention that I want. If I upplay this, I'll get the attention that I want. So I have to have to get extreme to get noticed. I think that's something that I noticed in my own consciousness and looking at my own thoughts. Real quick, the big obvious question, why does hope matter? When you look at the data and look at all the things, you correct for the variables, what does hope affect in outcomes?
1: So, and that also leads me to despair because of the contrast that we find. But hope is really linked to better future outcomes for people. So people that have hope for the future end up doing better in life. It's not rocket science. If you believe you have a future... You're more likely to invest in it, particularly like if you're young and you're making decisions about education or about taking risky drugs, or you also don't want to jeopardize your future. You're much more reluctant to jeopardize your future if you care about what you'll be doing in the future. And so we have a number of studies that show that in different domains, like they're also hopeful people are more healthy, not, I mean, you know, being hopeful Probably won't cure cancer, but it can help you cope with the treatment required to cure cancer, you know, if you're sort of determined. And hope is different from what optimism, which is not a bad trait, but it is kind of the belief things will be better. And that can actually be a survival mechanism for people who live in basically hopeless situations is to just be optimistic. And they do, more optimistic people tend to live longer and probably survive the horrible situation they're in. Better, but it isn't linked to sort of agency. It's not linked to behavior. Hope has real behavioral links. And so that's why I'm particularly been focusing a lot on it. I mean, it's clearly re- related to life satisfaction. Yeah. But hope is much more about the future, and life satisfaction is much more about an evaluation of how your life is. I think for younger people, maybe how they think it will be, or if they're confident that it will be a certain way. But that's much more nebulous, right? Versus hope is really a question about the future. And it it requires thinking about the future and sort of, you know, and then that in turn is linked to behaviors to make that future more likely to happen. Meaning a purpose, for example, is linked to that because I find that having a purpose in life is an anchor for people, right? And it gives them... It makes them retain their hope when things are difficult, right? right. If you want to achieve that purpose, you keep, yeah, you know, you're going to keep at it. And what is happening in the U.S. now? This is why I think hope has become a top. It's not become more important than it was before, but it has. It's become more important in our public discourse, and it's why not as many people as I thought would told me I was crazy to be an economist running a book on hope because people are realizing that we have widespread despair in the U.S. And so some of of that despair is due to deindustrialization and the decline of the white working class, but also other people who are just in deprivation without the tools to cope with it. But it really started with the decline of the white working class. And it was not just the disappearance of jobs. But in that American dream kind of construct where you had the stable family, the man was a breadwinner, he worked hard, had respect in his community. Maybe it wasn't a glamorous job, it could be a mining job, car factory job, but it was a respected job and the institutions that surrounded the jobs, the union, the, the family, the nuclear family, were sort of sometimes a church, but they were the mainstays, right? And everything, including actually church calling has, which I don't recommend as a cure for anything, but it's just another sign of, of, you know, our kind of civic organizations really declining, but all those things went with the, particularly in more rural places or suburban places where really built around one firm. And then the other structures kind of came with that, that all fell apart and including the stable family with the very high levels of labor force dropout, unemployment, addiction, opioids, you know, lots of things got thrown into a really perfect storm that led to vicious circles in people's lives and in their hope for the future, because destroyed it. And so it turns out that because the other puzzle, at the time I thought it was a puzzle in the data because I hadn't really learned about deaths of despair yet, that it was really the white working class that had the most the highest levels of despair suicides opioid addiction drug poisoning and minorities african americans and hispanics were much more hopeful about the future even though materially they were more deprived and the latin america thing didn't surprise me i'm from latin america but i was struck because i found this for the first time around the time of the Missouri, you know, the Ferguson riots, the Freddie Gray riots in Baltimore, a lot of concern about the African American community. And it was low income African Americans that were the most optimistic of all the low income groups I studied. And I looked at blacks, Hispanics, and whites because they were the biggest cohorts in my data to have enough observations that I could draw general conclusions. And I was very puzzled by it at the time. So maybe I had a coding error and I'd done the data wrong, but it turns out the more I read about it and learned about it, I realized there were many things that drove it. And one is obviously resilience developed over time, you know, over time, coping with injustice, with, you know, racism, with whatever else, and yet somehow making gradual progress. Yep. But the other th- system that I think is part of the story and certainly is for Latin Americans too, it's kind of, instead of this very individualistic vision, African-Americans have much more of a community vision. It could be Baptist churches, it could be grandmothers, whatever it is that I think create what I think of as communities of empathy. Because Mm -hmm. if you context people fall behind all the time and they're dealing with injustice and other stuff, and they may make bad decisions. We all do, right? But you know, a young black kid makes a bad decision and ends up in jail for 20 years, right? But I think because of that, the idea is to support the people that fall behind, the kind of the natural inclination versus, you know, the very individualistic, you work hard, you get ahead culture. That's not that there's no sense of that. I mean, it doesn't mean people are not good people or whatever, but there is just very different. There's less of a Social fabric, informal safety nets—you could call them as well—that kind of buoy people up at times of difficulty.
0: I know that the original impetus for this conversation was—I read your article, I think it was in the Atlantic—and I started thinking about it. And I think I told you the story that I was those poor whites. When we hear about the quote in the media about the poor whites in South Dakota, that's how I was raised. My, we didn't really have an income in my household between the ages between my third and 15th birthday. My dad's business went under when I was three and he had odd jobs and we did things, you know, to get by and family supported us. I learned today, I was asking my mom, you know, I continued to ask questions about, you know, where the money came from, what we did. And my dad refused support. Like we probably had, we had food stamps and could have had, you know, commodities, you know, government peanut butter, government cheese, those kinds of things. We could, we had access to those. And I remember eating it. I remember having it, but I don't remember where we got it. And it was, when people left it at an apartment, that's the stuff that we got. It wasn't that we got it from the government. My dad would not get it from the government. The pride wouldn't allow him to do it. Anyway, so, but this whole time, no income, my dad and my mom and dad always said, hey, just what you said, work hard, get good grades, go to college. You know, I ended up paying for college myself. You know, I couldn't, we had no money for college work full time through college. Do this, work really hard, be honest, do the right thing, you know, help people out da, 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 and you'll be successful. I remember I don't know if you know Zig Ziglar, he was like a you know an optimism slash yeah, you know, the name breaks,
1: yeah
0: Yeah, back in the day. The quote I always got was Jonathan, if you help enough other people out, you'll be successful. Like you can be successful, but first you have to help other people be successful. But I just this was drilled into me and I always think that that's why my brother and I were successful was because we were given hope. We weren't given stuff. We weren't given, you know, but you can do this. We were told you can do it. And I think that there's something huge in that. And that's what I really was resonating for me in your work is it sounds like that's part of it.
1: Very much a part of it. And it's interesting. And I remember when you wrote me, that story really struck out, you know, struck in my mind. But I think your parents in doing that provided mentorship, right? And they wanted you to, to do better. And one of the things that struck me in the service I did for the book, and not the ones in Peru, because they're all the parents want their kids to do better. And even though the parents are construction workers or carpenters or informal servants, you know, or taxi drivers, they want their kids to go to college and even more. And 85% of our respondents said they were going to college or grad school. I mean, it was this is a neighborhood where half the streets are paved and half are dirt and half the houses. Have sewage and type tap tapped electricity. I mean, electricity, and then the other half have water from trucks and, you know, like tap into the electric things. But so, mentor, having somebody in your community, your family that wants to support you matters, I think, a lot. And it certainly seems to in your story. And what's interesting and really depressing in those surveys in chapter four of the book. Was that the low-income white kids? At least you know in the school district in Missouri, but it shows up in the larger end data. They were very self-reliant, you know. They were, but they didn't want to go beyond high school. They had no sort of vision for the future. Their parents actively did not want them to go to college. They you know it's wasted time and it's at least a little coastal plot. I mean, some of that is newer, sort of going along with some of the ideology, and the. Low-income African-American kids, even though they were more materially deprived, had much, much more trust in others, much more of a vision for the future. They were much more hopeful about the future and going to college. And almost every one of them had a mentor. And it wasn't always a parent. They often not only had one parent in the household, might be a grandparent, but somebody wanted, you know, push someone saying, you can do this, right? Same message. And uh, it is a powerful, I think it's a really, you know, kind of life-changing message or the, or just having a mentor in your life that gives you, helps give you agency. And yeah. what scares me about these kids is that they have no sense of what's going to hit them in the labor markets, what the labor force of the future looks like, and that with a, just a public high school education and a dollar, they can buy half a Coke. You know, I mean, it's pretty, so I've, and to the extent, the other thing I've found is that the thing about, I think of despair as the analog of hope. So it's not exactly like there's a continuum where despair leads to hope. You don't, you know, high levels of despair are terrible for people's outcome. They don't care if they live or die. By definition, they have no hope, but there are other elements to it. And then, you know, but I think it's what despair actually takes people's agency away and it isn't just their income or their employment it's their ability to conceive of a different future and to do something about it and so and those it's sort of it's part of it is is it part of it is objective conditions changing that change people's lives but a lot of people have had negative shocks and continue to plug on and versus there are large swaths of this Countries' country's population that are now addicted to opioids dying of overdoses or committing suicide, like a million deaths from 2010 on, a rough estimate. Twenty in twenty twenty one alone, we had over a hundred thousand deaths from opioid overdoses alone. So the number's been increasing over time. And obviously the sort of the cycle of despair and then addiction, I think has positive I mean, it's a negative effects, but it has like externalities. So if you live in a community where everybody's addicted and dying of suicide and there aren't really jobs and everybody who can move away has moved away, kind of hard to be, you know, cheery and hopeful, right? I mean, so there is kind of a versus actually the reverse works, which is where if you're surrounded by a culture that is hopeful and supportive, it generally tends to, you know, kind of help you do better. Not always. I mean, for people in deep depression, that's actually worse because if everybody's hopeful and cheerful. Right. Anyway, so there's kind of a whole kind of community level component
0: to all this. I'm wondering about the struggle of dispersing hope. How, how, so if we know hope requires <clears throat> something internal, something from community you know maybe something from greater culture how do we from the outside manage for hope
1: yeah that's re- it's a tough one i've been looking at and i do think we can do something about it we have to i don't think that you know we oh. may not have all the the recipes yet but that, that it's really and the other thing that's really interesting is that psychiatrists say that hope is You've got to restore hope as a first step towards recovering from mental illness, but they don't have any tried and true recipes. And they, for large part, with the exception of some really forward-looking psychiatrists are thinking a lot more about community well-being and community despair and what, you know, how you can involve a whole community in restoring hope in the community or pride in the community. And those things help restore individuals' hopes psychiatrists are still, for the most part, in this kind of individual patient-doctor model. It works really well if, A, you have access to mental health, B, you can afford it. You know, I mean, that's a huge if in large parts of the U.S. that have high levels of despair. And so there are a whole range of strategies that have worked. Many of them I've learned. I've worked very closely with the U.K., groups in the U.K., the government of the U.K., and when they put well-being statistics into the government statistics. And then they've developed a range of interventions that are designed to, you know, increase people's well-being and hope. Their whole leveling up effort, which is a big effort to try and Im- decrease regional disparities, because the UK, like the US, has deindustrializing places, mainly in the Northeast and then, you know, Oxford, London, that are thriving places, and they're like two different countries and different levels of service, different levels of life expectancy. But actually the objective of the leveling up effort, little spoken, but it isn't just income inequality, it's reducing well-being inequality with the idea that people, it matches the hope stuff. People with low levels of well-being have worse outcomes in life. And part of it is because low levels of well-being affect your behavior. So, there are a number of interventions that I've learned about both from and worked with this organization called What Works Wellbeing, which is a, was in part funded by the government, in part funded by grants when they introduce wellbeing metrics into their statistics. And they do everything from look at, you know, wellbeing in the workforce to well-being in the community to the role of having access to green spaces to, Volunteering is something that shows up a lot, which when you talked about your parents' message really struck me. People who volunteer are much happier than people that don't. Now, okay. most of the studies are cross sections, so you can't tease out the direction of causality. Happier people are more likely to volunteer or to be social or all these things, but it, there's more to it. Yep. So their work, some of the work of some other organizations, a few in the US. The City of Santa Monica stands out for having the first municipal well being initiative, which was ended due to political reasons in twenty twenty, God forbid. November twenty twenty. No. November twenty nineteen. Even worse, right before the pandemic. You know, we don't need this stuff. But in any but they still they know are that group is led by Julie Rusk. No runs, it's called Civic Wellbeing Partners, and they try and increase hope among minorities in the city, because even though you think of Santa Monica as idyllic, there's a lot of inequality, a lot of racial discrimination, all sorts of things. But in the UK, what they've done is brilliant. They have instituted this program in schools in the Greater Manchester District, which is a big, quite deprived district, and it's called the Be Well Initiative. And what they do is they start with kids as young as eighth grade and they teach them things like self-esteem and coping skills, you know, how to deal with bullies, how to deal with loneliness, things that, you know, you sort of, you get if you grow up in a, you know, fairly stable, whatever household, but not always. And certainly not in some of these places these kids are from. And then they follow them every three years and they assess their both their reported well-being but also their academic performance. And the you know the skill set of what they're taught changes with age, right? They're age appropriate. And they've affected both in a positive way, academic yep. performance and as you would expect, but the fact that they've done it and evaluated it and the program is growing is really cool. And then there's I've been thinking a lot about these kids at the sort of entering the labor force age finishing mm-hmm. high school making decisions about college and how uncertain the labor force of the future is and certainly if you look, you don't have high skills you don't maybe you can get a medium skill programming vocational education but you know with high school alone and the kind of socio emotional and cognitive skills that are necessary in tomorrow's jobs you really need to think of other kinds of training we don't teach these things in high schools so i think a lot about that age, cohort, or and then how mentorship can actually be really critical, at least in steering kids in the right directions, because they don't really know what the labor force, I'm not sure any of us really know.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I think about my Rotary programs. I'm in Rotary and we have scholarships and we have this whole program for coaching and mentoring scholars that are going to college, but we have nothing for kids that don't go to college. And that's what, 50% of the population, 40% of the population. That's a lot of kids. It's
1: a lot. They need to train in some direction.
0: This is a gigantic question. So the four pieces that I want to just kind of put out there and just ask if, I wonder if there's something bigger going on with despair. Like you you mentioned Kahneman, you know, Kahneman was, won the Nobel first prospect theory, right? This general negativity bias, right? We have millions of years of evolution, whereas a species we're rewarded for our increased awareness or hyper awareness of risk. Like early on around the savannah, you see the lion, you don't see the lion. Person that doesn't see the lion isn't aware, doesn't see the lion, dies, right? So that person is no longer in the gene pool. In the last, say, 20 years, our access to information has just skyrocketed. Like our cell phones, you know, social media, last five to 10 years, that information has actually kind of become weaponized. I wonder, and this is the big kind of question, given all that, isn't it, shouldn't we expect despair? I mean, isn't that baked in to our hyper awareness, our negativity bias, and then this crazy amount of information that's now being used against us, you know, by Twitter, social media, all this kind of stuff?
1: Yeah. I mean, and that's why I think, you know, a lot of people talk about the increase in mental health. Problems among the young as so it happened during COVID. It didn't happen during COVID. It started in 2011, 2012, the big advent of social media. I mean, even between my kids, the oldest is 29, the twins 20 are 24, the, it was the younger ones that had access by the time they were 14 or so to Instagram and lots of social yeah. media. And, you know, before we didn't all have cell phones, you know, right? And I think that's been really difficult for kids to have confidence to, it also creates like a tension, everything's instant. You're at a party, you take a selfie and it goes up on the internet versus what about savoring them all? What about kind of, you know what I mean? It just, it creates a constant flurry that I think is not only negative in general, but it's also negative for cognitive skills, for things like deeper thinking, you know, attaining what, you know, what we call flow in your work, which is just getting, you know, fully engaged in that. It's hard to do that if you're, you know, emails dingy every minute or your cell phone. And then the other thing is with this flurry of information, it's only highlighted our risk and negative, you know, the kind of vulnerability to negativity because it's all over the place and, you know, teens are kind of brutal. So it's allowed some really bad outcomes and I, or it's developed into bad outcomes and patterns. And then it turns out the kids who are more introverted and much more likely to spend more time on social media, because that's a lot easier than actually going places with friends or whatever, that negativity kind of bias is increased, right? Because that's kind of what they're seeing in spades. So yeah, I think that's, and yet you couple that with some of the structural trends, labor market trends, the, what's becoming increasingly out of reach for you know so many in our society, so many of the kind of pillars of what we call the land of opportunity, whenever it was. And then another thing, and I think Bob Putnam is spot on with this, he wrote this book about a decade ago called Our Kids. And he talked about the fact that when he was growing up, You know, quite a while ago in the Midwest, everybody went to the public school. Everybody went to the same sports matches. They belonged to the same community, whether they were rich or poor. And there were rich kids and there were poor kids. But today you've gotten a privatization in a way, along with the increase in expensive private high schools, not just private colleges, but private high schools. You know, rich kids are on travel soccer teams, and poor kids play for the public school, and so that you've also like eroded on some of the bonds that hold people together. And there's a wonderful effort in Maine, without going too into detail, because I know we're getting short on time, called Portland Community Squash. Now, you never would have thought of squash as a unifying sport. You think of squash in like rich boarding schools in the Northeast, but it was founded in Portland, Maine, by just an absolute visionary guy called Barrett Teskin. And the reason he founded it is he, Portland is very homogenous, white, very cold town in Maine, right? They've had an influx of Sudanese refugees. So they fit in like you can imagine, just kind of a weird place to be. But what they've done is they get the kids in their program. The kids participate in sports together. But also in things like the arts, whatever, they have a range of activities. They have mentors. They actually have the people that work for them pick up the kids after school and then take them home after the program. Because in Maine, or in Maine, you don't walk, you know, two miles somewhere in the dead of winter after <laughs> school. But then they also have raised a lot of money to give them scholarships. So if they complete the program, they get a full scholarship to college. So that's part of it, that's the idea that, again, by unifying, you know, kids of all backgrounds through sports, which is kind of, you know, it tends to, it does tend to kind of equal the playing field. But the other thing it's done is that they host events for the parents. And so these people who would never socialize together, they live in different parts of town, they're very different colors, they come from very different cultures, but yet they meet each other watching kids' sports or at a dinner for the kids' team. And it's actually created a whole, you know, it generates a momentum of itself. So there's so many things we can learn from. And I, just quickly, another thing that works very well in deprived communities, we have a lot of out-of-labor-force people who are not going to go back. You know, retired 55-year-old auto workers with a lot of pain in their legs are not going to retrain and become programmers. But what the kind of the interventions do, and they're not very expensive, they just They provide access to volunteering. So they bring people into the community or access to the arts or even walks in green spaces and just plan them. It doesn't cost anything. But they get people out of their isolated, desperate shells back into the community. And that's a first step. And it's a first step towards restoring meaning and purpose in life, which then again starts to restore hope. You may no longer, you know, as you get older, you're not as hopeful for your own opportunities, but you are hopeful in different ways. Whether it's for your children, or for your country, or your communities, right? And so there are things we can do. They're not all written up in nice white papers about you know health policy or income policy yet, but they're, they're really making progress. I mean, even in the UK and in New Zealand now, they do their budgeting priorities around well-being. Well-being is actually the priority that societal well-being frames their budgetary decisions, not GDP, no, their decisions about the environment, all sorts of things. And so this stuff is really starting to, you know, it's bubbled up and transformed now policy making and government operations, not so much in the U S although it's starting to COVID scared us a bit. Finally, we've been talking about doing this. We had a well-being panel, National Academy of Sciences panel in 2011, 2012 on which Danny Kahneman was and other psychologists and economists. But even then, people laughed at us, right? This, what is this? I mean, all the Brits went ahead and put it in their statistics and whatever. But, I mean, granted, our statistical system is also very complicated and there's so many surveys. But some of it is we're even more politicized than oh, the most countries. Yeah. yeah.
0: If you could wave a magic wand and just change one thing, you know, add one thing to the system that would make a difference, what would it be?
1: I think getting the metrics into official statistics, it sounds like a boring wish. But honestly, what gets measured is what matters.
0: Yep. And what it matters, it's in done.
1: Official, when it's in official statistics, people start to be aware of it. Yep. So, and at first, it's a transition. I remember Gus O'Donnell, who was the mastermind behind the UK effort. He was they had been chair of cabinet for, in three separate administrations, Blair, Cameron, and Brown. So not small. And he was an econometrician by training, but he was a brilliant politician, is. And he said at first it was a nightmare, trying to introduce it, you know, trying to explain this it. isn't the government telling you how to be happy. But, and people didn't understand the scales, like what does a 10 versus a 5 mean and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, how many people know how we calculate the unemployment rate? Really not many.
0: No. But
1: the average Joe on the street or Jane knows that. A 1% increase in unemployment is bad and a 0.1% increase in so what, right? That's all they need to know. So, but that took some time to develop, right? So part of it is getting it into people's language and into, you know, understanding it and then they're like, oh, wow. And the other thing that seems to work with well-being metrics is people want to know what, how their well-being is, how their community's well-being is, what they can do, to you know improve societal well-being or maybe their family's well-being but it's something that's closer to home than saying okay we need to reduce income inequality as measured by the gini coefficient and just nobody knows what it is because it's bad for society well the average person goes yeah right but yeah, if right, you whatever. say if you say to them do you know that the poor and the rich in the US have a bigger gap in happiness than the poor in Latin America which is true they don't like that, right? They wait, wait a minute.
0: How's that? How can that be? Right. Right. Something's not right. There's a guy I interviewed, actually his name is Guy. I think he's in the UK and he's an economist. I can't remember his last name off off the top of my head, but he was hopeful because he said, you know what? The thing that's going to save us is the generation coming up, they've already changed how labor force works because they're like, I am not doing this grind, grind, grind thing. I am going to and the companies have to now change and well being is becoming something that's important. And it's talked about it at the company level. I'm in the Bay Area, so San Francisco Bay Area. So, you know, the companies are Apple and Google and these and they have a firm level lead over everybody else, which is, you know, obviously they're gonna add well being and they're gonna talk about it. And that doesn't really affect somebody that has a small manufacturing company in Kentucky or in South Dakota, right? It doesn't leak down, but it does eventually, maybe fifteen years from now. Hey, yeah.
1: The other thing really quick is the, new, the union movement now in the U.S. is the one that's like Starbucks and Amazon and all these. It's driven by young people who want change, right? They yep. don't want what's going on now. Yep. So I agree with Guy, whoever he is.
0: Guy. Yeah. Ah, what's his last name? Anyway, so there just two final things. And that is just really, I want to get back to the personal side a little bit. You've written so much. You've been very public about what you've done and struggled in a time when this wasn't really accepted from the economics profession. But personally, is there anything that, you know, people don't know about you or something you've said and people don't remember that you really want them to know?
1: Gosh, that's tough. I guess, you know, I say this a lot to my students. Like I have people that say they want, they don't know what they were going to do their PhD on. And I'm like, well, what do you care about? What are you passionate about? What are you interested in? Well, they're like, especially in economics, so I need an instrument or experiment. So the topic doesn't matter. It's all about the method, right? And I'm like, you can come up with that somehow. But if you care about what you're doing, if you're passionate about it, you're going to be prolific. You're going to publish. You're going to succeed because you care about it not just as a grind, right? You care about it because you're actually working on things that matter to you and hopefully others. But
0: So are you saying that they are doing something you love and it's not a grind? Yes. Yeah.
1: I mean, you know, reviewer number three on journal article number 72 can be a pain, but in general.
0: If you could get the truth about one single question, what would the question be? If you knew the answer you'd get would be the truth. Goodness. There's
1: so many, because one of the things I'm really involved in now is trying to understand science denial and the opposite of the truth, how we've managed to come up with alternative facts in our country, which I find very worrisome. But I think it would be kind of with all the explanations I've tried to give you and I tried to give in my book and that. There are still parts of this story about human behavior, about human well-being, about hope, right? That really we don't fully understand because we can't observe it. There are things we can't observe about people. And we know there are people who are just naturally more optimistic and happier than others. Some are more hopeful than others. Others are more cummergently. And we kind of, we don't really have the answer to that other than, well, people are different, right? But
0: So last thing is, how can people connect with you if they want to say, hey, I want to hear more about your research or where do they find you?
1: They can just email me, cgram at brookings.edu.
0: There's so many more questions. I I said this before we started, that I had three hours of questions and I have a whole stack of things I want to ask, but we do have to wrap. I just want to say thank you so much for coming on and answering some questions and talking to us. I appreciate it and our audience appreciates it as well.
1: Thank you so much. Really, really, really fun to talk. Enjoyed it a lot.
0: Thank you.
2: Thanks for listening. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at mindful.money. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash mindful money. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes.